Hi, I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About sand. About camels. About pants. More so about horses. Uh, About abduction. About secret whites. Uh, about adventure. About guns. About a rigorous class structure. About stabbing with knives. Uh, about Stockholm Syndrome. Most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week kicks off our series, which we are working title, Aha Shake Heartbreak. (laughs) Aha Shake Heartbreak. (laughs) With... I mean, how do we describe it in the subgenre? But not even in the subgenre, in the genre. Shake romance is a niche romance. But the shake by E.M. Hull was not niche. No, it was a blockbuster. It was a blockbuster. And I would say it was probably one of the early cornerstones of the genre. Sure was. It was one of the first times that a woman wrote what was billed as an adventure story. It was one of the first times that explicit sex and rape was talked about and was titillating. It was one of the first times that a book outsold the Bible. This was the second biggest book in America for three years running from 1921 to 1924. Wow, that's so much. So what do we call it? What do we call this? I think we call it a grand dame. We call it a stake. A tent pole? A tent pole? A grand dame? And then the movie was equally impressive and important. Yeah, super important. And the fact that the movie was made at all. Super important. Mm -hmm. It says a lot about like that we talk about, which is the power of the dollar for Mm -hmm. women. And for this genre in particular. Yeah. So where do we begin? I think that this book is old enough. And the plot is really simple enough that maybe we should start with like the circumstances surrounding the conceptualization of The Sheik by E.M. Hull. And you've been doing a lot of reading. I'm trying to catch up with you, but Mm -hmm. you have a little bit of history Mm -hmm. to share. Sure. So E.M. Hull was actually a really incredible lady. Her father was a Canadian maritime bigwig. Her mother was British. So she spent many of her years jet setting across the Atlantic. She spent time in the Mediterranean. She spent time in Egypt. And then in 1913, right before the outbreak of war, she settles down and meets a very landed, not quite gentry farmer from Shropshire and marries him and gets like sequestered in the country. And then war calls. He leaves. She's alone. And she spends the next four years of her life with almost no news of her husband. And she starts writing this novel, The Sheik, about a young woman, Diana Mayo, who doesn't fit the mold. She is not womanly. She's unfeminine. She wants to have adventure. She feels super duper cloistered by the politics of both her day and her brother. And she's not interested in marriage. She's not interested in love. She's pretty asexual, in fact, when the book begins. Right. She thinks that she's not only incapable, but she doesn't see value in it, which, you know, (laughs) feels pretty pointed on E.M. Hall's part. And yeah, this is the first time a woman entered into the story because at the time, right before the outbreak of World War One, there were a lot of books like The Sheik, but they were all written by men and they were all adventure stories more along the lines of something like uh, Brendan Fraser's The Mummy if the main character were simply Brendan Fraser and you didn't have Rachel Weisz. So you had a lot of big adventure stories that were basically just about imperialism. Just wanna, you just credited Brendan Fraser sure as the <laughs> owner of The Mummy. Brendan Fraser's <laughs> The Mummy. That is how I see it. Want me to say Stephen Summers, the director? Most people would. Okay. I <laughs> I really like that you're like Brendan Fraser's, Fraser's the, mummy. the Mummy. The correct version. Yeah, so she enters into this world and what's funny is like when she starts shopping her book around after the war is over in 1919, people are like, we don't know how to sell it because it's a woman and it has explicit sex. Also it has a breath of interracial sex. Uh, explicit sex for the for, era. For the time. Yeah. yeah. And she stays in the desert. How can that be a happily ever after? Yeah, she chooses to stay in the desert. We also get this thing that I read a lot about it in cinema history. These kind of 
star-crossed lover stories that were set in the antebellum South. And then post-Civil War, like the white person who's in love with the black person. Or sometimes it would be reversed and it would be a tragedy, would then find out that they were actually just like a very tan white person. Or they would find out that their very tan white person was actually a black person. And that would then be the tragic end of the story. And those were really popular there for a while. And that kind of is what the ending of The Sheik reminded me of Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Because we discover that The Sheik is, in fact, a white person. The son of a Lord Glen Carroll, who's also an earl. But he was born and raised by a Bedouin tribe in the desert. Because he knows who his father is. And uh, basically forsakes that life because he'd prefer to live with the Bedouins who he was raised by. Yeah, he has this speech about the English culture being the truly cruel one because his father abandoned his mother, who was like a Moorish Spanish woman, I Mm -hmm. think. Does it say she's Moorish? Yes. And so he takes up this mantle. And of course, there's the other part prior to this, like all the ways he is a sheik, but is not a sheik. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't have a harem. Mm -mm. He speaks French and other... (laughs) He's uh, a real Francophile. European languages. I mean, his instances of cruelty specifically to our heroine, Diana, basically just revolve around her kidnapping, her continual rape, and then this one very intense scene where he breaks a horse. Yeah, yeah. This is is also one of those things where a little bit of the author's life breaks in and I can tell you I could have told you before reading the Wikipedia page in fact I'm telling you right now before reading the Wikipedia page E.M. Hole horse girl oh hardcore horse girl here horse girl alert oh yeah me, me, me. <laughs> like if she could have had the velvet poster on her transatlantic voyages she would have real quick a horse girl is a girl who really likes or liked horses now you can grow up Mm-hmm. You can get other interests, mm-hmm. but a horse girl is a horse girl. Mm-hmm. I reached peak horse girl. Mm-hmm. I had a horse. That is peak horse girl. Yeah, that is peak horse girl. Like it, it's a certain je ne sais quoi. I mean, they're powerful, beautiful, kind animals that are also like just a little bit terrifying and also like not at all. There's so much to horses. Obedient yet opaque. Mm-hmm. Also, they're a little like bit this, dangerous. Yeah. And it comes with so many accoutrements. And like if you're a real good horse girl like you have to curry for your own horse and like doing all that whether it be brushing the mane Mm -hmm. of your my pretty pony exactly that's right or literally currying a horse yeah exactly yeah it is something that requires like grooming yeah and like lessons and it has its own vocabulary you get to be part of an in-group that also special outfits oh man the helmets (laughs) or the cowgirl hats the dressage. The jaunty beret. Mm. I don't know if anyone actually wears a jaunty beret, but you could. You could. You could also put it on your horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, E.M. Hall is definitely a horse girl and she's not hiding it. Horse girl all the way. Yeah. I've actually got to get some more wine here. I'm having an iced wine. Mm-hmm. Isabeau's having a Coors. Mountain cold. That's right. Mom and dad are fighting again. So the chic was received very differently on the two sides of the pond. So on the British side, it was wildly panned by the critics and wildly adored by the public. And in the States, where it was also wildly adored by the public, like I mentioned earlier, it was the second top grossing book of the three years, 1921 to 1924. And the critics weren't as hard in the States. But the thing that the British criticized it for was that it was like sentimental and too tender and like blah, blah, blah. But the thing that the Americans criticized it for was that it was basically up until the very end flirting too closely with miscegenation. And they thought that it was not only immoral, but wrong to romanticize that. Yeah, that was a common criticism of those movies I was talking about earlier. Yeah, that it would be romantic, that that would be the idea of a star-crossed lover. And so, like, the critics were like, it's well-written, it has excellent pacing in America, but it has this other thing that we cannot recommend. And they were terrified that young women were buying it and Uh buying it with their fresh new money that they had because women were entering the workforce in such a large moment. They were bobbing their hair. Bobbing their hair, wearing higher skirts, showing off ankle, using their own money to buy their own titillating 
books. Yeah. So then it becomes like a fresh sort of moral panic around what are we going to do with young women? Remember when Twilight came out and there was like another exactly kind of like moral that. panic that was like about the quality of literature that young ladies were reading? Right. So this is a hundred <laughs> year old way of demeaning women's tastes. Yeah. And constantly criticizing their choices as soon as they have like enough material capital yeah. to make their own choices. Yeah. But also the thing about chic romances, and this is going to come up a lot. It is. Race. Oh my God, so much. Race adds a lot to it. And it's not like we're reading into that. It's not like we're like somehow making it up. It permeates the whole thing. Like every assumption the character makes, every move that can be understood as good or bad can be racialized by the hero. And is by the other characters. One of the things that's like not refreshing, but it's sort of illuminating is that questions of race and race politics are not hidden and they're not obfuscated in this text. No. They're front and center. Yeah. And like, I hesitate to use a word like refreshing because it's not because obviously these are really old and terrible views, but like... It's surprising how frank it is. Right. I was surprised. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And in the ways in which you like you would expect it to be racist, it is. But it's also unexpectedly humanizing in part. For me, the part that was unexpected is... It is racist. It makes a lot of racist assumptions. There is friction at times against it in her own internality, her own consideration. You know, what does it say about me that I like it? Right, which then... But also, like, how can he be two things at once? Right. And, like, the thing about our character who's androgynous at the start, she likes to wear pants, she has short hair, she doesn't rouge her lips at all. They refer to her as a very pretty boy. Like, not infrequently in the first two chapters. Oh, man, yeah, as a desirable sex object that was another thing like oh you're a very pretty boy yeah like oh you're a very pretty boy come sit on daddy's lap exactly I was like this is crazy and also extremely frank that like these men are talking about their desire for this very pretty boy oh yeah even like in the first part when she's getting wooed poorly by Abernoth Abernoth Abernath Abernoth my family is from Abernathy Texas But Abernath, (laughs) as I will pronounce it. Fair. So like if you watch old film, you kind of have to know like this is sex like an exchange of a cigarette. Like mm-hmm. you you read a lot of criticism and that's how you are able to understand it because you don't have the historical context. And that's kind of the thing I expect when I read a book this old is that a lot of this is going to go over my head. Nothing went over my head about him talking about how hard he was for her boyish body. Yeah. I mean, he didn't say that, but it was it was obvious. Yeah, like he actually at one point when he's talking to somebody else about it, he's like fiddling with his belt buckle. It's like that explicit for 1921, which seems like bonkers. Yeah, like even us who are used to like reading things, they're like, I'm fully erect. (laughs) We were like, oh, Oh. he's fully erect, even though it said it in like so many words. So many words. (laughs) It was lugubrious. It was a lugubrious book. I remember at one point being like seeing that I had like 60 pages left and I was like, oh, I'm almost done with this nope 60 pages in the chapter (laughs) 60 pages in the chapter were left yeah but like what's fascinating about the frankness of the sex but then also the way in which like you would imagine an early 20th century book takes all of the goddamn time in the world to explain a sand dune it's like forever but there's also that thing that we see in like romance adventure is very at home in romance she Mm -hmm. goes to a lot of different places yeah she does she travels a ton and she's been traveling a ton her oh my god the story of her parents is so crazy. So her brother, Aubrey, is 20 years older than she is. Her mother and father are still lovers after all this time being married. They get pregnant again when her mom's like 42 or whatever. And her mom dies in childbirth because that's what happens when you're old. And then her dad writes her a note and leaves everything to his son, Aubrey, who's only 20, and then goes upstairs and shoots himself. And then Aubrey, who's like a cold fish and only loves sports and says old boy. He also has a monocle and a kip hat. Oh my God, the whole nine yards. And then he raises her as though she were the little brother that he would have wanted. Well, because he like didn't understand anything about femininity. And so he... And doesn't like femininity. No, and that's why he's going to America to find a wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the politics of this book are bonkers. We are all sporty as hell. Sporty as hell. Can you try this? I do want to try this. It's really nice with a lime slice. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that nice? That's super very good bottle of wine it's a terrible bottle of wine but i think i i think we figured out yeah how to drink it how to drink it 
Let me know when you're ready for one. Okay. The politic of this book is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly because she is a society gal Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. We should do the plot because I'm sure The Sheik is something you've heard of, whether it's the Rudolph Valentino movie or this book that Mm -hmm. the movie was based on. But... What is it actually about? Isabeau and I actually read it. We did. And thank God Isabeau bought a physical copy so that we could read the back of it. But it doesn't have a back. Typical. 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 Typical, typical. It's in the public domain, isn't it? I don't think I paid for it. All right. Our book opens with our heroine in... Where is she? She's in Algiers. She's in Algiers. In a city. So she's in Bacara, and she's there with her brother. She travels the world with her brother, who we talked about earlier, and she's been planning a trip by herself across the desert. She has always loved the idea of the desert. She loves the clean, white emptiness of it. She wants to do this on her own, so she books a guide who's going to lead her across the desert. Then she'll meet up with her brother in New York City. City mm-hmm. once she gets to a port town on the other side of the desert. Mm-hmm. On her trip, her brother bids her adieu reluctantly, which is weird for him. On the third day. On the third day. She goes to a ball because it is a romance novel at the end of the day. Nat, she goes to a ball and sexually rejects an Englishman and hears a beautiful singing voice singing about a, a white bird or some shit. Mm-hmm. Through the screens of her window. Yeah. She hits the desert running and her caravan is overtaken by this incredible band of horsemen who then kidnap her and take her to their encampment and she is taken she is raped by the sheik our titular character and she hates him and she's really angry with him and she's always gonna wear her pants to try and not tempt him even though he likes her green dress yeah he's got opinions on her wardrobe this is a romance novel mm-hmm. and he's got a french butler gaston gaston but our heroine is a bold and fresh piece of humanity she loves horseback riding she plans an escape attempt and it fails partially because the sheik has a rival sheik he sure does what is called the robber sheik mm-hmm. the bad one ibrahim omar and uh what happens is she tom fooleries with the french butler when he's supposed to be watching her out on her horseback ride tries to escape and then she's like oh shit i'm in a desert that i've never been in before i don't know where i'm going oh my god and then she's alone for like full 24 hours she gets to an oasis and she's got this cigarette i love how much they smoke in this book and i know i should love that but like he rolls his own and he has a special blend of tobacco and that's one of the cigarettes that she's stolen and she lights it up and then she has this she's like oh shit i miss his smell Mm -hmm. and then she's like i don't know what to do i'm alone in this desert i'm like i'm just gonna keep going my horse has two days and then like the next morning she's overtaken by our hero ahmed ben hassan well she sees him Mm -hmm. and then she tries to cut through a canyon and it doesn't work out for her because she doesn't know where she's going yeah so he overtakes her it turns out the french butler hasn't shown back up and she feels terrible and then he shows back up and everything's fine and then she realizes she's in love with the sheik right which seems weird and unearned at that point and but he said a lot of stuff like if you fell in love with me i'd get bored with you so she's like i've got to keep up this facade to keep him interested mm-hmm. been there done that sister <laughs> and then his friend who's like this book nerd from france also whatever. a v count named raul raul comes in immediately falls in love with her immediate how could you not she's a very pretty boy <laughs> and that causes tension and it causes the sheik to realize how much he cares for yeah, so then she's abducted again by the robber sheik. By bad sheik. has found out how important Ahmed Ben Hassan's new toy is. The redhead. The she's redhead, a redhead. Of course. She describes her hair as ridiculous. And I'm like... <laughs> you would. We know that the robber sheik is terrible because he guts a woman in front of her. He also has a harem. One of his harem members is like, I'm jealous. I actually like you and don't at all feel relieved that you're occupied with someone else. And so he disembowels her. Yeah, and then is beginning to rip off Diane's clothes. Our chic hero shows back up, vanquishes this man, which is crazy because like they had him at gunpoint and then he decides not to shoot him, but to kill him with his bare hands. Chokes him out. Yep. And then he's wounded because the bodyguards come (coughs) rushing in. I don't know where they were up until that point. They were pleasantly occupied. Probably smoking cigarettes. (laughs) 
And then Raoul has to eat his feelings, rescue his best friend, the Sheik, and then tells her the whole story of how the Sheik is actually the child of a British lord. And she's like, that doesn't matter. He wasn't raised that way. And he'll always be an Arab to me, which is crazy. But she says that like, he'll always be an Arab to me, which is interesting for this time period. Fascinating, frankly. Uh, and Raoul's like, oh, you know, I wish I could find a woman just like you. Sheik makes it out. And he's like, I love you. I'm going to send you back to England because I love you so much and you can't live with me. Yeah. Raul's like very excited because he's going to be her escort. Mm-hmm. And then this is the craziest part. This is like the craziest thing that happens. She's like, you send me to England. Fuck you. I'm not going. She takes his loaded pistol and puts it against her temple and says, I'll kill myself before I allow myself to go back. I love you this much that I'll die. He rips the gun out of her hand and is like, God have mercy on you. You've married the devil himself. That's how the fucking book ends. And that's the end of it. Happily ever after. It's very exciting. We've made it. We did. It was a lot. And it's like a lot of adventure. Like a lot of exciting stuff happens in this book, but not portrayed very excitingly. Yeah. You want to take the wind out of a sails of the excitement? Take five pages to explain a chase. One of the things that is like plotted really well, like every gun you see goes off, like every element, like it turns out he was the guy singing outside her window. He like saw her and created this crazy stick em up situation in order to get her and like it's all supposed to be very romantic the lengths he's willing to go to to obtain obtain is a good word you said something when we were reading this book you texted me and you're like this book feels both refreshingly modern and like ridiculously long and I was like ah you know I found that to be true and then I highlighted this particular part so she's talking to Raoul and he says beautiful woman madame he said unfortunately beauty provokes in some men all that is basest and vilest in their nature No man knows to what depths of infamy he may stoop under the stress of a sudden temptation. And then she says, and the woman pays, cried Diana, pays for the beauty God curses her with. The beauty she may hate herself pays until the beauty fades. And I was like, shit. That was crazy. And then moved by the sense of sympathy that had unconsciously been influencing her during the past week and which had shaken the self-suppression that she had imposed upon herself. Her tongue had run away with her. She was afraid of the confidence that his manner was almost demanding. Her pride restrained her from the compassion that her loneliness had nearly yielded to. And like you said something interesting and then you took all of the wind out of it. So why do you think that's interesting? I think it's fascinating that E.M. Hall was writing in 1919 about a 21-year-old girl who already understands the weight and consequence of being a pretty face. Mm. And that like that's the first thing that people see about her. That's the first thing people want about her, even though she's incredibly well educated. She's an incredible sportswoman. Yeah. She has a lot to offer otherwise. And then this idea that she's like, beauty fucking fades. Like, what's going to happen to me after I'm not beautiful? Mm. And I was like, man, these questions never go away. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. The question of beauty and also the question of beauty in this book, because it is doing in way more words that thing where it's like... Oh, I have like stupid hair and I'm like shaped like a boy. And then it's like, oh, everybody wants to fuck you. Like, I think when we talk about this idea of beauty fading, we're not really talking about like aesthetic beauty. We're talking about youth in particular. Well, we're talking about fuckability. Mm-hmm. How much people want to fuck you mm-hmm. and how many is really what we're talking about. Because that's the most capital you can cash in. Yeah. To this day. And it also, you know, this idea of like being overwhelmed by that capital. And this is the part that doesn't get explored a lot in romance novels for obvious reasons. Or when it does, it's not really done well is like, what is it like to have a dearth of that capital? Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be the one waiting for someone to take your drink order Mm -hmm. in a bar, you know, and to be the one who doesn't get the door held open for you. The other day I was walking behind a very beautiful friend of mine and we passed a guy we knew and he waved hi and I waved high but she didn't wave high and he got like so pissed and I saw it but then he didn't acknowledge me yeah I mean and that's like it's just two sides of the same coin but like it's ultimately about fuckability sure and there's this thing that Rachel Dratch the comedian who's in that movie Wine Country and like a ton of other stuff she's on SNL for a number of years she says I always play these like ridiculous characters who are like drudges and disgusting and like basically female Quasimodos but if you saw me in the street you wouldn't think I look like that. I look plain, but I'm not a hideous 
monster. Yeah. That's like her plainness is played for laughs. And like uh-huh. people put her up against beautiful women in comedies to like draw out those comparisons in a way yeah. that is always the funny side of mean. Yeah. Or like the fat friend who's always like very sassy and confident so that you don't feel bad thinking that she's fat. Right. And that the other more thin character deserves to fall in love. Yeah. And so in that way, like this book was fascinating to me because there aren't really any other female characters, which is something that I never like in a romance. But what was so weird is that to have a young woman be like, you don't understand the weight of this. Like I've been abducted. I've been raped. Like my beauty comes at a cost. And like with one of our ice wines, the one written by what's her face is the Titanic one. No Greater Love by Danielle Steele. Thank you. No Greater Love by Danielle Steele. And we know immediately that the the beautiful, ethereal, angel-like sister is a danger to herself because she's so beautiful. Yeah, Like, her beauty is written as danger. Especially her white beauty. Yes. She's got white hair. She's got white skin. Yes. And in fact, I think that is important. It is. Like, our chic is singing the song about, like, a beautiful white flower or Mm -hmm. bird or something. She is, like, very pale. She's a redhead, so we're to understand she is white- Yeah, she burns. Yeah, and like the beauty of the desert is all wrapped up in like whiteness. Mm -hmm. And then when I was reading Desert Passions, she traces like a historicity of this kind of romance novel back to romantic poetry that used to very simply equate purity and goodness with whiteness Mm -hmm. and evilness and devilishness with blackness in like a really literal way to the point where, you know, back in like 1020 AD, people were writing romantic poetry that reads like a chic romance about a white lady falling in love with a chic and then in one particular poem once she falls in love with him and he converts to Christianity he becomes white yeah which is a similar journey that our hero takes in this book indeed and then at the conclusion whenever she's like he'll always be an Arab to me he says you will marry the devil himself he's Uh, gonna stay brown yeah and that's how she wants him and that's a very interesting I mean that's a progression (laughs) I mean, that's certainly the the argument that the author of Desert Passions is making is that this book is actually pretty progressive for its age, that it's also coming at a moment when empires have been entirely broken up because one of the things that happened in World War One that hadn't happened before is that England and the Metropole call up arms of all of their colonies, you know, including India and Australia famously and New Zealand and Canada, but everybody is called to fight in France. So suddenly it's an incredible diversity that somebody from Shropshire or like wherever, whatever, bumfuck England, who's never seen a person of color before is suddenly fighting in the trenches with them. And one of the most interesting things I think is this erasure of empire in the trenches has been really really specific and we're now in a moment where especially since it's the 100 year anniversary of world war one ending people are rediscovering like the photographs of the empire fighting and one of the reasons why you know people from india fought and volunteered to go so far from home to fight a war that like had nothing to do with them basically is because they thought that it would confer full citizenship status to them yes and like this book is writing into that ethos in a particular kind of way Mm -hmm. which is fascinating yeah i mean it's interesting because the idea of a racialized history is growing up in the american school system there is this like idea of us not learning about race in our history classes but we do like we don't learn proportionate amount (laughs) like we don't certainly like but we do learn about it but there is this ingrained idea of like race being a problem in America but not other places Mm -hmm. other white places that I think is really inherent in the chic Mm -hmm. and also inherent in the criticism of the chic Mm -hmm. and how it differed between the US and Britain for sure definitely unquestioningly and both the book and the film in the United States. The film was huge in the United States and didn't get as big a reception abroad. And partly I think it's because it's this question, especially in like the 1920s and like, again, like the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and like race panic in the US was happening, but also it was happening at a time when like barriers are coming down. Like people could see films and like read books and like it's weird how the, it's not weird. I mean, it's like obvious why these things become confluences and why people react to them in the way that they do. But what's crazy is that E.M. Hull writes this incredible breakout novel. She's like set forever and then wants to write a second one and she does. It's called Son of a Sheik. Son of a (laughs) Sheik. 
And it's like the progression of this idea where it's like, we're going to live in the desert. This way of life is worth living. Like there is never a question that the Bedouin way of life, also his Muslim religion, like she's going to take on all of that. And this book is really explicit about that. But all of that is pretty much rolled back in Son of a Sheik, which was published seven years later. Yeah, of course. Yeah, things got different. It's all exciting and exotic, but then your way of life or whatever is threatened by the presence of this new identity. And then suddenly you have to like recalibrate textually Mm -hmm. in this case if we're like placing it in its historic context. Yeah, which for England especially was a rigorous redeployment of empire. Yeah. What I want to talk about is that at the end of the book, she has this real intense acceptance of his Mm non-white identity his racialized identity but up until that point like everything like beautiful and noble and respectable about him was his frenchness Mm -hmm. his whiteness Mm -hmm. right the books on his shelf and the newspapers he got his tobacco his tobacco tea even yeah his tea set his french man good servant good body gaston yeah yeah that's one of the things that's like the fact that like what he doesn't do is also as important as as what what he he does does do yeah and like it's interesting the way in which they talk about his violence because the rapes are always fade to black and certainly not as violent as johanna Lindsay. He's a pirate's love. Well, they couldn't talk about actual penetration. No, but even in the kisses, because he says this thing to her when he first abducted, abducts her and he's like, subdue yourself, little fool. Like, it's just like kissing on her, those like hard movie kisses from the yeah. 1920s. Yeah, that's what I always pictured. And that's what the movie delivered. Totally. Big and, mashy kisses. And then she's like, I don't know why I like it. And like, to me, like that didn't feel particularly racialized that felt like something like she's missing a particular kind of femininity and like here is a man's man to like give it to her yeah to give it to her exactly yeah in all the senses yeah I think that's it like a barbaric like a like an untamed like an unsophisticated but like masculine and good in that way because her suitors at the very beginning well, of the novel well it's sexy but is it good it's sexy I mean she ends up with him so the she novel she ends up with him but is that like does the novel think that that's correct because I think the novel feels really sympathetic towards Raul. Super sympathetic to Raul but not Abernathy or Abernot. And and I don't think the book is necessarily totally sympathetic to our heroine. No. And she is certainly like I think the book kind of is like here she is getting her comeuppance. This super masculine pretty boy is just going to get raped a bunch. Until she learns to like it. Yeah. I, I don't think the masculinity is presented as this like I mean it's sexy but I don't think sexy is necessarily a good thing in this book. It causes like all of the conflict and it causes even just taking into consideration I know I shouldn't but if I take into consideration how things pan out in Son of the Sheik Mm -hmm. like this book doesn't fully believe that this is a happily ever after. I mean they stay together in Son of a Sheik like the problem in Son of a Sheik is Is staying together all it takes for a happily ever after? In romance novels? Maybe. I know. I mean like I just think the book isn't totally convinced that she's a good person. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't think his like... I think there's a lot of like, if you're this kind of woman, Mm -hmm. this is the only kind of man who can tame you. Yeah, because she's always allegorizing his treatment of the horses to her. Right. If you're this kind of woman, this is the only kind of man who can tame you. But he brutalizes the horses and it's understood as being brutal. Right. And it's understood that his masculinity and his violence and his command, right, which today like we could be like very boring and be like toxic masculinity, which like I'm so sick of hearing toxic masculinity and people, it's like they smell something bad and then Mm -hmm. they're like, it stinks. Yeah. Yeah. That's like not helpful. Helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, I do think his masculinity, while it's there, is understood as like a sort of barbarism. How and that then? can only exist and can only work in the context of the desert. Yeah, because- it can. And like that's the choice that he's making because like he has to be a different person. He has to wear different clothes, speak another language. We know that he's already gone through the process of living that Western European lifestyle yeah. and that he has chosen the desert over that. And then at the end, our heroine makes the same choice. Sure does. But 
but it's because the hero already knows he can't exist in a different context and she's already decided to submit to him. Right. And I think the initial moves of his masculine comparison to the other men we meet before Raoul shows up, I think he is better. Like there's something about his masculinity or the way that he's presented and like his sensitive upper lip, which is mentioned more than once in this book in comparison to the monocle wearing fops that are trying to gain her attention, which is like a weird move. But I think the calculation is, you know, she didn't know what she needed because she'd never met a Raul before. And so she is instead completely taken by this very unsophisticated, uncouth masculinity. She's taken with it. Like, that's the thing is like, she is taken, she submits. It's not like she learns something about herself. It's not like she falls in love so much as she submits. And I think the book is saying like, this particular kind of radical femininity, air quotes, only belongs with this sort of barbaric masculinity. And I don't think the book is totally convinced that that's a good thing. In fact, I think the book thinks the sexiness is a problem and our heroine understands the sexiness is a problem. Some of the most exciting parts of the book, the greatest interiority, the greatest detail we get about our heroine comes from like her desire to escape and to leave her situation. Like things get really flat once she realizes that she's in love with the sheik. And her realization is kind of like a Duzax machinette. Like she just like smells and she's like, oh, I do love him even though I'm running away and will continue to do so. Yeah, it's a massive Stockholm moment. And then he shoots the horse out from underneath her. Yeah, he gives her a chance and she decides that she's going to keep going. And like that's her ultimate like breaking point, right? In a different world, she would have met Raul and she would have been like, he's interesting and he's adventurous and we could be together. And he's also refined. Yeah, but Raul is never presented as a real option for her because by the time she meets him, really, she's already basically in love with the Sheik. Well, yeah, the book wouldn't work if it actually complicated her feelings for the Sheik. But I think... Like, it's saying, like, she can't love him because she's been broken by the Sheik because he's the only kind of man who could interest her up to this point. Right. And that's because she was ruined by her misgendered upbringing. Right. But it's not just his barbarous nature it's not just the command because it's all the other things too like we understand the sheik is multifaceted right like he doesn't have a harem he reads in many languages he has these like softer sides he like has specific wants for her to wear particular kinds of dresses multi-dimensional is really generous I think he has a binary an internal binary that's western and eastern and it's pretty flat and it's pretty apparent like which box each characteristic can go into. And he's easily predictable. I mean, everybody in this book is easily predictable. Yeah. Everybody in this book is easily predictable. I don't think any of them are multifaceted. And I think the sex in this book is bad. Mm-hmm. Right? It has to be. But also it just is. He could have forced her into a marriage mm-hmm. early in the book and then they could have started having consensual sex at some point. But she resists him throughout the text. It's mm-hmm. all rape. Even when she falls in love with him, she's like, has to protect that it's rape like if someone's presenting as rape like you know what I mean all the sex is bad sex and so I would say the sexiness of the chic is therefore bad like we're allowed to enjoy it privately in our own lives but if we go out and we talk about how sexy the chic is when he isn't a very white Rudolph Valentino mm-hmm. then it becomes uncouth the sex in this book is bad so the sexiness of the chic is bad and the sexiness is this like throwback masculinity mm-hmm. which we're gonna get into but even in this era it's considered a throwback masculinity like she talks about his barbarism mm-hmm. but like that to me is more racialized than it has to do with masculinity at that point because there are his other masculinity is racialized parts of it are but other parts of it aren't and like that's what I find crazy because it's like a broader discussion of like masculine woman must learn how to be feminine what parts of his masculinity are not racial I mean, it's him in comparison to the other men where it it just feels like masculinity writ large rather than a racialized masculinity because he gets the girl in the end. I feel like it is racialized because the other men we're comparing him to, like all of the other Arabic bodies we meet are neutered. They're desexualized. Mm -hmm. Other than our bad guy. Who is just... A villain. Just a monster. Mm -hmm. But it's the move from the beginning where like she's presented with not just one suitor, but like four. And she turns them all down. She's like, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to be married. I think you're right when you say that this 
author feels a particular way and wants to maybe punish or like take down a peg our heroine and like the way to do it is through kidnapping and rape and like this masculine command where it's like she hasn't met a masculinity to complement her femininity or awaken it I think is how this book would term it yes I agree that's true, but I also think his masculinity is entirely racialized because in the book, it's always described as like a barbarism or part of his cultural identity. The demands he makes, the things he does, his violent behavior is considered uncivilized. Like, I mean, we have to take this in its historic context, Mm -hmm. which means civilization for E.M. Hull is whiteness, Mm -hmm. right? The opposite of barbarism is progressivism is whiteness. Mm -hmm. Whenever he kills the horse when he's brave, it. Well, he doesn't kill the horse that he's breaking. He shoots the other horse out from under Well, whenever he like wears down the horse until it's like mouth is bleeding mm-hmm. and it's bucking and it's tired and it's sweating and it's exhausting. She calls him a barbarian. Mm-hmm. He shoots the horse that she's riding just because he wants her. And she thinks like, wow, to have so direct and simple of motivating factors, right? Like his collection of books is like his sensitivity is complicated, but it's not masculine. Like it's not what turns her on. His particular brand of masculinity is racialized, I believe, throughout the book. And therefore, his race is sexualized. Sure, I agree with that. But to the extent that like we don't meet, other than Raoul, any other male white characters... Because our heroine is flawed, right? By the book's estimation. Right, but like... And and we're learning from her perspective, the only person who can turn her on is someone who has bad, old, racialized masculinity. I just think that the idea that this book presents us with so many other white dudes and none of them are acceptable and her brother is not sympathetic and Gaston is neutered in almost the exact same way as the rest of the people in the camp there's something here about like compliment yeah exactly but that's what I'm saying like the reason the book doesn't celebrate these other white male bodies in the text is because it's from her perspective we experience these white male bodies through her perspective we experience Abernathy through his own perspective. That's how we know he has a heart on. Well, like that's him expressing himself to her. No, because he's not telling her that. He says it to the other guy. Well, that's him expressing it verbally. It's mm. not like we're in his own mind. And it's not like we're like, oh, wow, he has this, like her understanding of what he's doing, we get from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Like what he's doing to woo her, we get from her perspective. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that his masculinity is regulated. Like if he's going to talk about having a hard on he's not going to talk about it to her whereas our chic does that's true but like that's also an interesting move because this book does like in its obfuscated 1920 version of itself this chic does in no uncertain terms tell her that he wants her and wants her body and like Abernathy does the same thing but he's characterized and not just by her because we're at least in an omniscient third at that point because Abernathy like basically says to himself I'm a nice guy I deserve her and she's like you're boring And then we know that he's had these sexual feelings for her because we get that from his perspective, like three paragraphs above that. But you're right. Like the sheik just straight up tells her. Yeah. That's fascinating. That all of his sexuality and masculinity is racialized? No, that like, I guess through like the idea of the racialization of sexuality, he's like just straight up telling her shit that like other people are hiding from her or obfuscating from her or like, you know, skirting around. What I'm saying is that, right, his directness, comes from the fact that he is this exoticized racialized body from his like refutation of his boarding school upbringing that is what allows him to have this aggressive masculinity that our heroine finds sexy the reason she finds it sexy is because her femininity is broken like she She does not want to be married yeah she doesn't want to be married she doesn't want that particular kind of romantic love that kind of good love but it doesn't like she wants that hard sexy love and so she's got to get it in the hard sexy desert from a brown guy yeah but she's always loved the desert and that's what I think where this book has like a sort well of, she's always loved the desert but that's just part foreshadowing. of foreshadowing right but it's also like part of this like unfeminine thing about her and I think like that's part of this like push and pull of this book where it's like his directness 
is valorized and othered. His masculinity is put above the others and othered. And like in all of these ways, it's like halfway both at once. And I find that treatment and then the treatment of our heroine and her eventual like, I would rather kill myself in front of you than go back to England. Weirdly complicated for a really simple book. I mean, she's making the same move that he made. She's rejecting her whiteness Mm -hmm. so that they can be together. Violently. I'm wondering, can you connect that to the way this is racializing sexuality? I mean, I don't know. The horse that she was riding was white. But those are two different things. You were talking about her suicide. How can I connect her suicide attempt? Her violent suicide threat Mm -hmm. to how this book is... Well, in my estimation, how his masculinity is racialized and sexualized, and this book is anti-sex. Oh, I don't think this book is anti-sex. I think this book is, I certainly can't call it pro-sex, but like in the same way that a pirate's love is, I would not call anti-sex. Like certainly none of the scenes of sex in this are good. Well, there are no scenes of sex. Right. The fade to black moments. The Um, rape. Mm-hmm. The rapes. But like when she makes that turn and she's like, I'm going to pretend I hate this, but I like actually love his kisses. And like, this is something that I'm into. And like, I'm going to stay here by any means necessary. I think there's some like weird moralizing happening in this text against our hero and heroine. Hmm. I think this book is not entirely interested in these two characters being happy or these two characters being properly fulfilled and these two characters having a good ending so much as this book is interested in these two characters ending up together. I think that's interesting, except like none of the characters with the exception of Raoul are likable, which is like another... Right, which is another reason I don't think this book is interested in them being happy so much as it's interested in them being together. I don't know. I mean... Like, she spends pretty much all of the book trying to get away from the hero. And then when she decides to be with the hero, she's kidnapped by this other and then watches another woman get disemboweled in front of her and Mm -hmm. then watches her man choke a guy to death. So, like, the book literally ends with his arm tightened around her and he turned her face up to his. Her eyes were closed and wet. Lashes lay black against her pale cheek. His lips touched them pitifully. Diane, will you never look at me again? His voice was humble. Her eyes quivered a moment and then opened slowly looking up into his still lingering fear. You won't send me away? A hard sob broke from him and he kissed her trembling lips fiercely. Never, he said sternly. I will never let you go now. My God, if you knew how I wanted you, if you knew what it cost me to send you away, pray God I keep you happy. You know the worst of me. You will have a devil for a husband. And then she says, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything with your arms around me, my desert lover, Ahmed. If the book is interested, first of all, that scene of them kissing is the exact same scene of them kissing every other time. Mm -hmm. Like, she's always weeping. She's always trembling. Even when she's about to be raped. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like happy tears. The shift is is him saying that he's humbled Mm -hmm. and him crying. And also, like, caring about her happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breaking his masculinity. So if he's gonna have a happy ending, then his masculinity is somewhat tempered and therefore his whiteness. I think this book is associating whiteness with a certain degree of mediation and masculinity is therefore racialized because it's out there, it's in your face, it's aggressive, it's violent. The happily ever after then occurs whenever he's sensitive and vulnerable. Meets her violence with sensitivity. And that's what I meant about where I feel like this book has a real push and pull. I agree with you on a lot of this. Like he is other, his masculinity is sexualized and asceticized and all of that is true. And there's this other thing that's happening that feels like overarching. What's the other thing that's happening? I feel like his masculinity is like both inside of a race, but also like it's this move of compliment where she's broken and unfeminine and he's too masculine. So when she's violent with herself and he meets her with the sensitivity, Like, that's how this book is reading itself in terms of, like, this pairing. But if everything up to that point has been racialized, then whenever it shifts, then it is de-racialized. It's whitened. Sure, but, like, we knew that because he's the secret earl. Right. Like, where's the dispute? I feel like it's only a dispute in terms of comparison, right? It's only in a dispute in terms of like, his is a better, stronger, whatever kind of masculinity that gets shit done in comparison to her brother, who's also incredibly physically masculine, but not read as like a good person. And her other foppish suitors who are all British and all white. I don't think this book is convinced that anyone is good. And I think this book does think that by virtue of 
of him shedding his masculinity in order to have a happily ever after is saying that his masculinity was bad, his race was bad. I don't think he's shedding his masculinity by like having tears in his eyes while ripping a gun out of her hand. You don't think his like profession of love and his like weeping is a big character shift? I do from think it's a character shift. Okay, and like the way masculinity was understood in 1921. Yeah, but I don't think it's a break. I think this is like one of those turn towards like foppish masculinity isn't desired brutish masculinity isn't desired the two things married are it's like a tempering it's a tempering but it's also his masculinity his sexiness is bad his romanticness at the end his romanticization or whatever I don't want to say that because of the context of when it was written but like his transition into being the marrying type mm-hmm. a shedding of a cultural and a racial identity mm-hmm. and, and her becoming a marrying type is giving up something too I'm not really interested so much in like because her giving up something I feel the book is understanding more as personal growth because we see we feel her through the text coming to this point of self discovery and being like "Ooh, I'm not all like this and like here's my journey of personal growth whereas he just like boom it's a moment of demarcation there's an early part whenever his friend comes and is like you must really like her and just by virtue of him like keeping her around as long as he does there's this you must really like her there's that but then when he's mortally wounded and then he has his like fever dream about her yeah there's that part I mean it's like threading through the last quarter of the book it's starting through the last quarter of the book but there's three quarters of text there mm-hmm. where he's just like constantly raping her mm-hmm. making demands hitting horses that's all tied up in his racial identity and whenever he's like saying her name in his sleep or whatever mm-hmm. and his friend's like oh he's actually a white guy mm-hmm. like that's a thing mm-hmm. like whenever he becomes like expressive of his feelings and not just his fuckings then suddenly he becomes a white guy and Mm -hmm. we're provided with all of his white context Mm -hmm. like whenever his white friend shows up and treats him like a fellow white his white friend is also like i bet you really like her huh i mean he's always going to be palatable because he's a secret white like that's how em hall was going to get this book not only written but also published but he's not always palatable because if you read this book for the first time without knowing that context as like a white lady in iowa Mm -hmm. probably like all of the sex and all of the kissing and Mm -hmm. all of the groping was maybe sexy but in a bad way in a dirty way and all of his groping and all of his grabbing and all of his raping was because he was a sheik Mm -hmm. so then what's the aesthetic pleasure of that of like that kind of barbarous violence what is the aesthetic pleasure i mean what's the pleasure of it why would there be a woman in iowa in 1922 like reading this shit up i mean because sex is shame sexual pleasure is shame and sometimes you know you're a married lady you have sex I mean, adding this layer of like social unacceptability, right? Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. People were like, oh, it's very kinky. It's not kinky at all, but it's kinky to the kind of person who needs something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to think about this book for a long time. I'm going to think about its moves for a long time. Why? Because I think for such a simple book, this like push-pull is just... And the fact that it then set a precedent for women writers and the beginning of a genre and then like kind of set the stage for an ugly niche for the next hundred years is weird. And like, I think something that will occupy my mind. That this is kind of the framework for the genre or one of the framings, one of the One of the tent poles. Skeletons of what we read today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean like... I do feel like bad masculinity, good sex is definitely something that exists throughout the genre today. For sure. And then once they become, they lose their bad masculinity, the books will talk about like, and they continue having good sex, but it's not the same. (laughs) And it's less about the sex and more about the marriage or whatever, the Mm -hmm. like stability. I just think, and this is going to be important for the series going on, is that this really, I think, positions bad masculinity, good sex as being racialized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like palatably so. Like there's a back door out of it. Yes, there's a back door out of it. I mean, I imagine it, you know, you have to think about what it would have been like to read this book without knowing that he's white at the end for... Yeah, I wonder an old-timey white person. I mean, I think you would just understand it. I think you would still be turned on by it, but not for, like, healthy, normal reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also rape, and that's something you're not supposed to be turned on by, but that was probably 
more acceptable than interracial coupling. Certainly. No question. I mean, it was like still legal to have marital rape until 1992 in most states. I'm glad I read it. I don't think I'm going to think about it that much. Mm. And it's partially because it's all there. Like, there's not subtext here. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, everything I've discussed, I feel like was pretty superficial in the text. Like, it was all there, but I just don't think, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about, like, well, what can I say about the rape? And, like, what can I say about this? And, like, what's going on with this? And, like, I tried to dig deeper into it, and I just don't, it didn't get much more interesting than what was already presented right there. I think the details around it are what are most compelling to me, like, especially now and, like, the moment that we're living in, the way that Islamophobia has, you know, supercharged discussions of the Middle East in general. And like the ease in which the Muslim religion was talked about in this book was... It's so funny because like I'm thinking about like the way the Muslim religion was talked about in this book and, and it's not. We know that they're all Muslim. They pray to Allah five times a day. Like his tent faces east. And like it's it's like that though. It's like the fact that it isn't a thing. It's like all aesthetics. It's not a politic the same way right. her brothers need to get married and her father killing himself and her courtship by like the four idiots is like a full rich politic. Right. Yeah, it's part of the weaving, like the carpets. Anyway, I think we both said that there really isn't a sexiest part. So was there anything that you found titillating about this book or should we just jump to weirdest? Actually, yeah. The part that I found maybe, I mean, I don't know about titillating. I really loved how much she loved the desert. Mm-hmm. I also really love deserts. I love to be in the desert. I love to look at deserts. And I think it can breed as a really boring space. And I think E.M. Hull really did a beautiful sweeping sumptuous layered (laughs) in a way she didn't do with a lot of other stuff way of talking about the desert and also I thought it was interesting the way our heroine even though I believe this part of her personality and this aspect of her personality is problematized the ways that she does take control of her situation and manages her life I mean she gets into an unmanageable situation pretty early on but like trying to establish her authority with her guide by just like waiting and saying like I'm the one paying you like kind of exercising that influence was a really interesting thing to read about it's also interesting to think about it happening in 1921 and of course what's going to happen post-World War II with femininity yeah. and, and the direction women's lives are going to go. Yeah, I loved the the setting. That like third chapter or whatever was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. How about for you? The love of the desert was incredible. I liked her various outfits a lot. And like I said this before, but like they smoke so much. Yeah, the smoking was cool. They take so much pleasure in it. And I loved that. I loved how he has his own blend of tobacco and he smokes it all the time and he takes like a particular pleasure in it. And like she has the cigarettes and like watches him roll them. And then she's alone in this oasis with her horse thinking about her life. And she's like, oh God, shit, I do love him. And the fact that she's just alone under the stars at this oasis smoking this like special cigarette I was like that is that's a scene if you're gonna have like a epiphany of any kind I want to be alone in a desert with my horse and my tobacco I loved that weirdest part weirdest part it's like a lot of weird parts and we've already talked about like kind of the overarching strangeness you know, I think there's something to be said also for early in the book, his courtship, which involves sneaking into her room and replacing her bullets with blanks and her <laughs> revolver and like singing outside of her window. At one point, she's charmed by the fact that he actually did all of that work. And he's like, yes, who else would I allow in your room? Like this kind of like seedy, slithery performance of romance that will come to be <laughs> a really big problem in the future. But kind of seeing the foundation being laid in this book was pretty weird like seeing like the foundations for a lot of problems being laid was really a weird part another interesting part the nice you know like okay we've been saying like interesting and fascinating a lot but obviously that comes from a place of privilege because like this book isn't hurtful to us Mm -hmm. our lives haven't been made worse by any ideas or assumptions that were perpetuated by this text about our race or our religion or our national identity Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to say. Mm-hmm. Not feeling personally attacked by this book is, and not being personally attacked by this book is something we haven't talked about for us as critics, I guess. Yeah. Like if we look at this historically, I mean, the stakes are really low for us. 
mm-hmm. to read this and to talk about this book. And so with that in mind, it's really yucky to think that there are people who look like us who are still playing in this sandbox, as it were. Yeah. Like in 1921, sure, whatever. That was not great, certainly, and terrible and, you know, all of the things that it is. But things that happened in 1921 still are destructive today. Certainly. And that this set the stage then for a niche romance that still publishes is insane. It is weird. It is really, really weird and destructive. And it's far reaching. And for a book like this, I think I'm surprised that it's that far reaching. Like I've read a lot of books from this time period that nobody reads and like certainly went out of print. But The Sheik went out of print fairly recently, like the 1980s. Yeah, I think it's it's ripples are not good ones, by and large. All of them are bad. All of them are bad? You don't like any of the ripples? I'll worry it. You know, I'm going to worry at this. I think I'll worry at it for the whole series, kind of like a scab, you know? Sure. And like the things that I actually deeply enjoyed about this book, like the tobacco and the scenes of her being alone and also the fact that like she has a gun and knows how to use it. Like I I genuinely like those moments and I was like excited to read this adventure story. And boy, tell you what, when she put the gun to her temple, I was legitimately surprised. I think there needs to be like, it's clear that you don't dislike every ripple that came out of this book and that not all of the ripples are bad ripples. I think we have to ask, were they worthwhile? Like this was a woman adventure book. Mm -hmm. This was also a book with sex in it Mm -hmm. and frank discussions of sex. Mm -hmm. This was also a book that demonstrated the buying power of women, Mm -hmm. albeit mostly white women Mm -hmm. yeah and then launched the career of valentino and its whole other thing (sighs) yeah i mean it's the career of valentino is a blip (laughs) (laughs) only because he died so young yeah but he died so young but like who knows if he would have actually been like i believe that pretty much everything valentino was going to achieve professionally Mm -hmm. had been achieved oh wow by the time he died because like silent film stars barely had naming credits at that point nobody worked past the age of 40 know and he wasn't a very good actor he was all drugged up and drunk anyways like it's interesting that it happened but it's kind of a piece i i understand it as like a piece of ephemeria it's written a lot of academic books about it lots of people about valentino and like his landing on the scene and like then female sexuality and like how it became more visible because of their capitalist and sexual attraction to a film star like valentino i mean he was the first who's the first heartthrob there's just like not much to being the first somebody he's gonna be the first okay it was valentino i don't think he was like born to be the first heartthrob i don't think he like did anything particularly special i think he got a good casting he got a lucky casting and probably not even lucky and uh you know it's just like there are so many beautiful charismatic people in the world it just matters who gets put up there Mm -hmm. like rudolph valentino could have been anybody maybe but he certainly resonated with audiences people like that guy and people like this book (laughs) People like this book. Are you going to stand by the argument that all of the ripples of the book are bad? I mean, so there's the text of the book and then like there's the book, right? So like I think I'll walk that statement back. So like I think it's good that E.M. Hall broke into adventure stories and paved the way for women and that women had buying power and showed their buying power. And I think all of that's great. But by and large, I think what this book then set up in terms of romance tropes Mm-hmm. Not great. Do you think if E.M. Hull hadn't done it, someone else would have? Maybe, but maybe not as well. Or like maybe it wouldn't have caught fire in the same way. Like it's hard to know. There had been other women who had written romance novels that didn't catch like this before this. I'm trying to think if like every trope she set up is a bad trope. Like this book is a problem. Mm-hmm. But like I think about the stuff that is in this book that is bad that is still pleasurable mm-hmm. on a level that is bad pleasure that comes from the fact that culturally our understanding of sex is broken, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of bad masculinity, good sex, I feel is like really pervasive and like having that kind of like authoritative macho hero is a trope. And it's not a trope I would say I dislike or I don't enjoy when I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I guess, like, can I be mad at E.M. Hall when I enjoy contemporary stuff that isn't so different from hers? Mm -hmm. 
like her race politic is bad, but so is her sex politic. Neither is that different from what's getting published today. Mm-hmm. So it seems really strange that this particular aspect of romance is so maligned and the rest of it is just kind of allowed to continue uninterrogated. I think that's right. I think the fact that this niche is so maligned, having never read a chic romance before this and now having read a couple, it's like, I assumed that chic romance was like a funhouse mirror of a genre that I like, but then it's like, oh, maybe it's not. It's It's exactly the same. Yeah, it is just a mirror and like it makes bad moves. Yeah. And I think coming to that has been sort of like not only disheartening, but also like, oof, I need to interrogate like the underpinnings of the genre. And also it reminds me even of like any time we've read something a white lady has written about a brown guy. Mm -hmm. Like it's not that different. Yeah. Besides like the books that get written now are like a little bit better about smoothing the wrinkles on their pants while they say what they're saying. They're still exoticizing and sexualizing a racial identity in a way that's not necessarily pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like about a pleasure of difference. Mm-hmm. It's about a pleasure of conflict caused by difference. Mm-hmm. Romance or nomance? It's a nomance. I really don't think you need to read it. <laughs> like Unless you're writing like an academic work about romance. If you are, then I think you need to read it. But yeah, if you're just like a fan, don't bother. Mm-mm. How about for you? Yeah, it's a no man's. I would watch The Mummy if you're feeling like you want a desert aesthetic with Brendan Fraser. Not the one with Tom Cruise. Although I did like that it was a lady mummy. Isn't The Mummy 2 a lady mummy? No. Isn't it Maria Bello? Maria Bello comes in to replace Rachel Weisz as Evie in The Mummy 3, which takes place in China. The Mummy 2 is the Scorpion King, which is The Rock. When was the last time you watched it? Which one? Any of them. I watched The Mummy with Brendan Fraser a few months ago. I feel like it's been a while, but I don't know how it holds up. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's excellent in it. Everyone's excellent in it. Oh my God. The clothes are so good. How's like the one... Adet Bay. Yeah. He's good. Does he talk? Yeah. He has a whole arc. <laughs> he has a much better arc in the second movie. Wait, who's Adet Bay? He's the leader of the Bedouins who warns them not to like fuck with the mummy and then they fuck with the mummy and then he becomes their like helper friend and then he comes in the second movie he shows up in London to help them rescue their son. I also love that actor. He was not enough stuff. What's the actor's name? Oh my God. Added Fair. Ooh, oh God, you are a handsome man. I don't remember who that was. I don't remember. There, this guy. It's Peak. When's the last time you watched The Mummy? It's clearly been a while. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was in high school and it was on TNT. I don't remember. With that, <laughs> loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.